Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's episode where we are talking about the origins of man's best friend, the origins of dogs. The domestication of the dog is a fascinating story that takes us back to the Ice Age tens of thousands of years ago. It's a tale that will take us across the length of the Eurasian continent and even into the Americas too, so get ready. Joining me to explain all, I was delighted to interview the brilliant archaeologist Dr. Angela Perry, who has researched the story of early prehistoric dogs at sites all across the world, from North America to Kazakhstan to Siberia. I really do hope you enjoy, and here's Angela. Angela, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're more than welcome, and for this topic, early dogs, man's best friend, this is the earliest animal domesticated by humans? Yes, I mean, that we know of, yeah. I mean, pretty far back in terms of ahead of the other domesticated animals that we know of, so maybe like over 10,000 years before any other animal domesticated, so yeah. So how far back in the archaeological record can we go when looking at evidence for... Mm. Well, some of the earliest domestication for dogs. So it's tricky, right? We have, I'm an archaeologist, so I want to say, I want to see hands-on bones. I want to see the skeletal remains of some dogs. But I also work in ancient DNA, so I have to make an argument for, you know, the genetic evidence for domestication of dogs. So our most recent paper on this topic was kind of focused on, you know, the genetic evidence for seeing, you know, what we call like maybe a ghost dog. We, we can see the genetic evidence of dogs dating to around 23,000 years ago, but we don't have any actual physical remains that are anywhere near this timeline. So we can see essentially that we have two populations of dogs that kind of split off from each other around 23,000 years ago, meaning that they must have had a common ancestor that was also itself a dog. So we can date that population split to 23,000 years ago. So we assume we had dogs at least 23,000 years ago. And you kind of mentioned it there, Angela. So when approaching this topic, I mean, what types of material do you have available to try and learn more? It seems like the science has really come on in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, 
Lucky for me, dogs is a sexy hot topic, right? The recent kind of group of us who are dog researchers has really exploded in the last kind of five to 10 years. In the same time, ancient DNA analysis has really kind of come along. So these two things have kind of combined together. So obviously the kind of skeletal, to use your word, skeletal remains of dogs is our primary focus when we're looking at kind of dog domestication, but also the DNA. But also we have lots of sites that have other really interesting kind of telltale signs of dogs. So we have this kind of material culture evidence of dogs. We have things like finding bones and things that have been chewed, kind of gnawed at archaeological sites. We have things like sledding dog sledding material that suggests maybe of dogs at a site. We have kind of artistic depictions and renderings. So in Saudi Arabia, for example, we have really old dog rock art way before we have any kind of physical evidence of dogs there. So, you know, we kind of have these like little hints and clues about dogs. Let's take the world picture and go to different parts in the world to kind of explore this story of when we start seeing dogs emerge. Now, you also kind of mentioned this near the beginning, Angela, but when going back, let's say more than 20,000 years ago, what's the belief at the moment in regards like the origins for dog domestication? Do they think that this originates from one particular area or that it emerges in different areas independently at similar times? So it's funny about dogs because there has been such a focus on dogs for the last five or 10 years. And we really haven't gotten very far in what we understand about dog domestication. Every time we think we're getting close to an answer, we just find more questions, which I think is good science. I think that that makes it more interesting, more exciting, more people get on board and start writing papers that kind of contradict each other and more evidence. So where we're at right now with domestication is it's tricky because dogs, like many other domesticated animals, continued to procreate with wolves. You know, as dogs were domesticated, more they had kind of interactions with wolves continuously. And for the genetics, at least, and and the, the skeletal morphology kind of causes issues in us trying to determine, you know, when was domestication exactly? How do we identify what was a dog or a wolf? So in terms of location, we're kind of still up for debate on where that is. We wrote a paper recently that suggested that dogs were likely domesticated in Siberia, kind of northern Siberia, in that 23,000-year-ago timeline. But then very quickly, like humans, essentially humans were kind of trapped up in Siberia during the last ice age, kind of hanging out, waiting for things to, to sort themselves out climatically before they pushed back into the rest of Eurasia. And we think, like humans, that dogs were domesticated kind of in Siberia and then pushed back out into the rest of Eurasia. And that might be why genetically all dogs look very similarly related and kind of appear across Eurasia at similar time periods. So that's our attempt at explaining it, right? They're domesticated in Siberia during this time where humans and animals are kind of trapped and hanging out. And then they explode back into Eurasia kind of along with humans at this time. So but you'll talk to another group of people who will disagree with that and say, that's not right at all. Dogs were domesticated in multiple locations, you know, all over Eurasia. It's tricky because the genetics aren't clear. The archaeological record isn't clear. Other evidence for dogs isn't quite clear either. But um, that's our explanation of the timing and the kind of location. 
it's just really interesting. And as you say, as more information comes to light in the years ahead too, but how when looking at this topic, if we're looking at Paleolithic dogs in Western Eurasia, and then as you mentioned also in Eastern Eurasia, places like Siberia, could it potentially therefore be that in certain parts of the world, maybe at a later date, that an alternate view is that like early dogs in one part of the world were domesticated from a different kind of wolf to an early domesticated dog in a different part of the world. Yeah. So one of the things we can tell from the genetics is that every dog that we know of appears to be descended from the same lineage of wolves. Now, what we know about that source population is that we've yet to find it. So we suspect it's a, an extinct population of ancient gray wolves. We know it's a gray wolf. We know it's not our modern gray wolves. It's a gray wolf closely related, but we've yet to find it. So we suspect some population of gray wolves, I would say in Siberia, that are now extinct. And we've yet to kind of come across their genetic material to to identify. Yep, that's it. But we can see that dogs are all domesticated from this same population. So going back to the story I just told, we think it's likely that a scenario such as humans domesticate a small Siberian gray wolf population. Those dogs move with humans back down out of Siberia into Germany, China, the Caucasus, those areas. But as they're moving down, those dogs are interbreeding with local wolf populations. And that's what gets us that suggestion that we have dogs domesticated in multiple locations because dogs love interbreeding with wolves. And so you end up with early dog material that appears to be kind of geographically isolated. But I suspect it's just that those dog populations are interbreeding with the local wolf populations in multiple locations. Going back to the question of when wolves are being domesticated, they become dogs for the first time, let's say in Siberia, as per the argument of yourself and your team. I guess a big question has to be, why? What was the incentive? Yeah. So sometimes when I'm, you know, laying in bed at night or, you know, everyone has great ideas in the shower. And sometimes I'm just in the shower thinking about dogs and domestication. Eureka, Eureka, yeah. Yeah. And that's always my question is, you know, humans and wolves lived alongside each other for tens of thousands of years before they were domesticated. Why suddenly, you know, 20,000 years ago, do people think this is the time we're doing it now. What would have happened? So I'm always trying to think of what's the driver, right? What happened that made people decide now we're doing this? And for me, the kind of isolation in Siberia, that isolation of humans, but also the kind of isolation of wolf populations likely made those two groups of carnivores that are very similar in many ways, We're daylight hunters. We hunt things larger than ourselves. We're pack animals who care for each other's young. We are very similar to wolves in lots of ways. And it's likely that in kind of an isolated area such as Beringia, which is what we call that kind of area in in northeast Siberia during the Ice Age, that wolves would have been kind of thinking about alternate resources, one of which would be Humans make a lot of trash. We leave a lot of rubbish around. We kill an animal and don't eat it all. We leave its bones and skin and all of that. And we suspect that, you know, wolves would have figured out very quickly that humans are a great source for food. And if you just follow the humans around enough, you know, they'll leave enough trash behind them that you could kind of, you and your young, kind of live off of them. And what happens with all wild animals, and we know this now from modern populations of things like bears and foxes, 
you know, we have urban foxes in, here in the UK that essentially live off of humans, right? And live in an urban environment. And, and wolves would be no different in that you would have populations of wolves who became dependent on humans and their offspring would eventually only know how to depend on humans and wouldn't know any world in which a wolf is a wild hunter. They would know themselves as wolf the scavenger and that the way we survive is by scavenging off of humans. And those populations would eventually breed additional populations and additional populations. And you'd get so far into the generations of wolves that had never hunted, that had never been wild hunters, and had only been scavengers, right? And so we see this now with things like bears in Alaska that are largely feeding off of, you know, trash pits or people's waste. And, you know, you see a lot of wild animals around the world that have become highly dependent on humans' trash. And there's no reason that wolves would be any different and that generationally you would get, you know, 10 generations down the line where you'd have a wolf pup that has no concept that they're the hunter of, you know, great things. They just know themselves as a trash pit wolf. As you've highlighted there, something I hadn't even thought about, Angela, is the fact that it's almost a natural process over time because of the waste, because of the food remains left by these groups. And also you highlighted these highly mobile groups as well. So this was just something that could potentially have just come about after generations of sticking very close to these groups of humans. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we see good examples of it now and it's not completely difficult to understand. And I think some of the other proposals of how wolves may have been domesticated, such as, you know, humans see a totally adorable wolf pup and think that's coming home with me. A combination of these things, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. Our idea of the trash pile scavenger hypothesis, which is kind of what we call that, does not exclude the idea that also people thought wolf pups were really cute and they were going to bring them in. And it almost has to be a combination of those two in a way that you start to see wolf pups and wolves kind of living on the edge of your village at first. And we know this very well from the way that people interact with modern wild animals that you see them out there, you know, people live among bears and wolves and coyotes and all sorts of things. You see them out there. And as long as they kind of don't bother you and you don't bother them, they live on the fringes. We're kind of okay with that. The occasional one gets a little feisty. We kill it, leaving the kind of passive ones to continue to breed. And then eventually you get a population of semi-passive, self-domesticated in many ways, wolves that are on the fringe. You allow to get closer and closer. Maybe they start walking through your village, getting closer to you and your kids. You're kind of okay with it because they don't bother you too much. And eventually you come up with a situation where you kind of have some domesticated animals. Maybe you don't mind it so much because they keep other predators away from your camp. They keep the camp kind of clean on the outside. They clean up your rubbish and your poo and all the things that you don't want sitting around your village. And so you think maybe it's not the worst thing to have them around. No such thing as a silly question. Why have these particular groups become isolated? So what we call the LGM, the kind of last glacial maximum, the ice age, the last kind of big ice age, was a kind of climatically fraught period where we went to glacial conditions pretty quickly and populations essentially withdrew from northern Eurasia into kind of central and southern Eurasia. But some populations withdrew north. And so they withdrew into this area that we call a refugium in northeastern Siberia, kind of on the very northeastern area of Siberia, where it appears that there was a kind of a climatic 
refuge where it wasn't so bad up in that corner. And instead of making your way all the way down south back through Siberia, you kind of sheltered in place in this area. So we have lots of interesting evidence from this area of populations of animals that kind of survived in very small groups. And it's not a small area. It's Siberia. It's still fairly large, but you wouldn't have wanted to pass back through the rest of Siberia into Eurasia. You would have been kind of isolated in this northeast corner. And it's seemingly they had enough resources, food, and eventually these are the people who made their way across the Bering Land Bridge into the Americas, and then others who continued back down into Eurasia. Let's go west before we go east. I'd like to talk a bit about that Arctic element to it, which is really, really interesting. I've got names like the Husky in my notes. I'd love to ask about. Yeah, but yeah. Before we go east across the Bering Land Bridge, if we go west towards, let's say, Western Eurasia, by the time we get those communities coming back there, and you mentioned earlier how then these dogs are then interbreeding with other species of wolf over there. Do we know much about the wolf in these Western Eurasian hunter-gatherer societies living in like, you know, the last stages of the Ice Age? We know that people interacted with wolves quite a bit. We know that people killed wolves and skinned them and used their fur and all those kinds of things. And we have plenty of evidence of the remains of wolves at sites in kind of Western Eurasia. And we know that we have a population of dogs that still exists. We kind of we subdivide worldwide dogs into largely A, B, C, and D groups. And we know that the C group is the kind of European dog group. And that, you know, populations of dogs were occasionally replaced. So we know that we, from the earliest dogs we have in Europe, these kind of C group dogs that they hung out in Europe for quite a long time. But eventually, movement in from a population called the Yamnaya that came kind of from the Asian side, moving into Europe, that they brought their type A dogs with them. And that eventually these type A dogs kind of swamped out most of the European type dogs. So we still have lots of kind of C group dogs in existence, but there are these A type dogs, which is what things like New Guinea singing dogs, dingoes, huskies, all those types of dogs fall into. So most of the world's population of dogs now is type A group dogs. So like humans, you know, populations ebb and flow and move and push out other populations and other groups move in and there's interbreeding and things like that. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. And how important a part of these hunter-gatherer societies do these early dogs become when we're like talking about these massive distances that these communities are ultimately covering? Yeah, so my PhD was actually talking a lot about dogs as hunting tools and technology 
I'm really interested in the idea of working dogs and, and what dogs do for us and help us do. And so, you know, if you ask my PhD, dogs were incredibly important for early hunter-gatherers across the world. When we're coming out of that ice age, right, we again have a pretty extreme climatic shift out of that ice age. We have rapid warming and we enter the time period called the Holocene, which we're in now, which is much warmer, obviously, than the ice age we were in previously. And we're thankful for that. And one of the things that happened along with that is that, you know, the environment changed. We were previously in kind of polar tundras or kind of cold conifer forests. We moved into deciduous forests and warmer land. And with that, the prey species changed, right? We know that at the end of the ice age, a lot of megafauna went extinct. A lot of the things that hunter-gatherers before dog domestication were hunting went extinct and we moved into kind of smaller animal populations like deer and boar. And that kind of became the focus for Eurasian hunters were those kind of mid-size animals. And anyone who hunts knows that using a dog to hunt deer and boar is kind of like prime use of a dog. Hunting in dense forests is really hard. I've done a lot of it, and I've done a lot of it with dogs. And I can tell you that hunting a dense forest for a deer or a boar with a dog is a lot easier than hunting a dense forest by yourself. I can tell you what it feels like to be in a dense forest hunting boar. is terrifying. And having a dog with you makes life a whole lot easier. And we know that early hunter-gatherers across Eurasia and in North America figured this out pretty quickly, that a dog was a kind of prime use for hunting, and they used them pretty extensively. And does that kind of correlate with the surviving evidence of, I don't know, dog skeletons or genetics that is it at that time that you do really see a mass explosion of the amount of dogs in these communities? You do. Around 10, 11,000 years ago is when you just really see dogs coming in across the world. And you start to see things in that kind of deciduous forest belt that a large portion of the kind of hunter-gatherers are living. You start to see dog burials all over the place and in places where you would think that people would be hunting deer and boar. You see dog burials that are very elaborate. They're very human-like. You see dogs being buried with things like projectile points and arrow tips and deer antler and kind of all the like regalia that you typically think of, like a human male hunter being buried with, you see almost the exact equivalent in these dog burials. They're buried very lovingly. You know, I've excavated a number of these burials where you, you can tell that the dog has been placed in a burial pit with their tail and their feet kind of curled around them. And they're just like in a almost like sleeping like position. And it's so sweet. And they've got their little grave goods with them. And you can tell that someone really cared about this animal and it meant a lot to the local community. If we do go back into the Ice Age to the time where there was still megafauna about, if talking about Western Eurasia, my mind immediately thinks of the iconic cave art that you see where they have all these depictions of massive Ice Age megafauna that they were hunting and then deer and aurochs and so on and so forth. Do you see any depictions of dogs amongst them anywhere? In some of the very later rock art, the Magdalenian rock art, which kind of dates to that time period where we know we definitely have dogs, we see a few dogs. But the early stuff, Chauvet Cave and Altamira and those places in France and Spain that are dating to, you know, the 30,000-year-old mark, we don't see any depictions of dogs. We have a couple examples that people think are wolves, but no depictions of dogs, which makes sense because I don't think dogs were domesticated during that time frame. So it makes sense. and also. You know, a lot of evidence shows that dogs are not actually useful for the hunting of megafauna, that they actually spook 
large animals and it gives the animals time to run before you can hunt them. And, you know, most megafauna like that probably would have been hunted by ambush. And dogs aren't really great at ambush hunting. They're loud. The prey species can smell them from a mile away. They're really good at chase hunting. So it would make sense that you wouldn't really find dogs very useful for hunting large megafauna that you're trying to ambush. Before we get to the Americas and crossing into America for these hunter-gatherer communities, I remember when we last chatted quite a few months ago now, we actually talked for a bit of time about Kazakhstan and our visits. We've both been to Kazakhstan quite recently and you've done some work out there. I remember doing an interview not too long ago with Dr. Carolyn Willocks on like the origins of horse riding and horse domestication. But when like looking at the Botai culture a bit later, admittedly, something that I hadn't realised until Carolyn mentioned it was that horses originally had been domesticated, not for riding, not as companions, but for food. Now, is there any evidence potentially that dogs in the early stage of domestication were used as sources of food? So we don't have evidence like horses that their primary use would have been food. We definitely have evidence that in emergency situations like dogs, you know, I like to call dogs like a Swiss army knife because they just do everything. And one of their uses is an emergency food and fur source. And we know that from, you know, explorers in the 18th and 1900s that they would use their dogs as emergency food sources. And we see some evidence of that early on, but it's definitely not the primary use. When we do see dogs being used as food a lot is when agriculture comes in and the importance of a hunting dog decreases, then suddenly people are like, well, we've got all these dogs. We don't really need them anymore because we've got grain now. And then people really start butchering dogs and consuming dogs kind of in many places across the world. So definitely the importance of dogs seems tied to things like sledding and hunting and that they become less important when agriculture comes in. But then people find different uses for them. You know, that's kind of the rise of livestock guarding dogs and um, guard dogs and things like that. Well, you mentioned sledding right there. And of course, we were talking recently about eastern Siberia. So let's keep going east. Is therefore the domestication of the dog, is it really significant in allowing early groups of people to live and survive in Arctic conditions? I think so. I think I used to be a real proponent of hunting as the first use of dog, but I've really come around doing lots of work in the Arctic that it must have been that sledding was the first use of a dog. And we have some really interesting evidence from Siberia showing, for example, that people were sourcing raw stone tool materials from very, very far distances, which, you know, across the Arctic plateau thinking they're not they're that's a far distance to be walking for a raw material and if you had sled dogs which we have evidence of sledding at that site and toggles and things like that that you would normally put on a sled dog it would you'd be going a lot faster if you're using sled dogs to move across these areas and i think movement of people across siberia during that time period movement of people you know back into eurasia and eventually across into the americas would have been, you know, significantly increased by the use of a sled dog. And, you know, anyone who lives in Arctic kind of rural communities now knows the use of a sled dog. I mean, a lot of them use machine sleds now, but, you know, up until very recently, the use of of sledding dogs to move you across vast ground in the Arctic was a really normal thing. Is there evidence of sledges, therefore, dating back to the Ice Age in northeastern Siberia? That's mad. We do. We have some really early evidence dating to around 10,000 years ago. 
obvious evidence of, of sludge dog use. And I suspect that, you know, the, the problem with Siberia is it's such a vast area and finding archaeological sites in Siberia is like a needle in a haystack. And so I suspect that there's a lot of evidence out there for sledge dogs much earlier, but we haven't found the site quite yet. Also, again, there weren't a ton of people living there. There was a smaller population of people who were kind of isolating there. So finding the evidence, finding the, the archaeological sites, and then getting lucky enough to find the dogs that we can evaluate is a work in progress. We're still looking for that wolf population that dogs were domesticated from. So, yeah. Well, let's keep going east there for across the Bering Strait. Angela, big question. I know sometimes controversial question as well. But what do we know about when and how humans reach North America? And should we therefore be picturing these groups with dogs? Really controversial question here. So I think everyone, you know, except a kind of fringe group of people are mostly on board with the idea that the Americas were populated across the Bering Strait, the Bering Land Bridge and people moving into the Americas in that way. Until pretty recently, there was the question of did people go completely by land or was there kind of a coastal migration as well? I think we've come to the realization that it's probably both that people were moving inland through this kind of what we call ice-free corridor moving across land, but also probably moving down the coast that way as well. We have some early sites and early evidence on the coast. We have some very recent evidence of early dogs on those coastal sites as well that are very, very closely related to, you know, husky, Malamute, Arctic dog populations as well. They all fall within the very small subset of a kind of a haplogroup, a DNA group, showing that they're very closely related. So you know, we think that humans and their dogs moved into the Americas probably sometime around 15 to 20,000 years ago. I won't put an exact number on that because the debate is still raging. But I would say that most people who work in the peopling of the Americas space would probably agree that that 15 to 20,000 year mark is probably a safe bet. And amongst the material from this time that I know people like David Meltzer have done a lot of work around, as you highlighted there, Angela. So there is the evidence now of these early dogs coming across with the humans. Yes, I think if we have evidence that dogs were domesticated by 23,000 years ago in Siberia and that these are the populations that are the ancestors of Native American peoples, then it's our suggestion, you know, the paper that I wrote with Dave was that Dogs were likely domesticated in Siberia by the ancestors of Native Americans and then made their way back into the Americas with ancestral Native Americans and then kind of split out into various groups across the Americas. But also that same population of dogs moved back into the rest of Eurasia as well. And that's why all dogs worldwide are clearly from the same source population and seemingly are closely related, but are different in lots of ways as well, with the addition of local wolf genetics being popped in here, there, and everywhere. So yeah, I think that they definitely came across with humans, and then they spread out across the Americas with humans as well. Let's explore one of these sites in focus in North America that I know you've done some work around, and this is the site of Costa. Now, Angela, what is this site? So Coster is a site in central Illinois that's really interesting because it is the 
spread of time that it covers is really extensive. So Coster expands from around 11, 12,000 years ago all the way into kind of a historic period. So we've got a nice understanding of how people lived in this one site for many thousands of years. And for a long time, up until very recently, Coster was the site of the earliest dogs in the Americas. We have at least five dog burials from Coster and then individual kind of dog remains from other parts of the site. We know that dogs at Coster were, these five burials were intentional burials, again, buried in the way of, you know, kind of curling the tails around and had grave goods with them and were clearly, you know, treated with some kind of reverence. Also, we know that the dogs at Coster were probably fairly small. I think most people would assume that the earliest dogs would be these, you know, huge kind of husky-like dogs. But by the time we have dogs at Coster, dated to around 10,000 years ago, we think dogs would have been domesticated for at least 13,000 years. Um, so it's in some way no surprise that they're not these huge husky type dogs. What's interesting in the dogs at Coster is that we had two different kind of types of dogs. We could tell from their skeletal remains that they didn't look the same, all the dogs. Some dogs seemed like bigger and more robust, and some, some of the dogs seemed more kind of like gracile, thin-boned. We were trying to figure out what was happening here. And so we did some kind of genetic testing on them. And we realized that a few of the dogs from Coster had very, very recent coyote ancestry. So they were actually koi, what we call koi dogs. So they're kind of half and half coyote dogs. Again, I'll just reiterate, canids love interbreeding with each other. They will breed with anything. You got wolves, you got coyotes, you got dogs. They are happy to kind of interbreed. And so clearly the local dog population at Coster was also like hanging out with coyotes and these people had these kind of koi dog mixes. That is insane because my next question is going to be like, how did these dogs coming to North America, how they affected the American ecosystem? And one of those key ways, as you say, is that they interbred with other canids already present on that continent. Yeah. But then there would have been both coyotes and wolves in the Americas. And so they definitely interbred with coyotes and wolves. And, you know, part of going back to Kazakhstan, part of the issue of dogs and wolves and kind of wild canids that can interbreed. You know, when I was there, I interacted with many people who were kind of pastoralists who said, we choose to, to leave our dogs out at night in the hopes that they will interbreed with a wolf to make them a bigger, stronger, tougher dog to fight off wolves. And so we know that this happens now, that this always happened, that intentionally or not humans are interbreeding their dogs with other animals do domesticated dogs affect the american ecosystem in any other ways yeah i think obviously the arrival of dogs and shortly before them wolves and coyotes as well would have significantly changed the ecosystem in terms of hunting for other prey species so for example one of the other kind of things i work on is dire wolves and looking at what happened with dire wolves and why did dire wolves go extinct. And I think, you know, dire wolves and saber-toothed cats and all those kind of iconic animals. Dire wolves. So they are not just something from Game of Thrones. This is an <laughs> actual very real. creature. Wow. <laughs> They're a real, real thing. Extinct now, but very real. And only in the Americas. We know from a recent paper that we did on genetic analyses and, and radiocarbon dating that humans in the Americas and their dogs would have seen dire wolves. They would have interacted with dire wolves. They would have overlapped for, you know, a couple thousand year time period. 
And the arrival of humans and their dogs may have contributed to the kind of downfall of dire wolves because what a dog allows you to do in hunting flexibility, you know, your ability to take out large groups of prey species very quickly probably would have affected the prey availability for animals like saber-toothed cats and dire wolves. We also think that there's a possibility that you know dogs arrive with who knows what kind of disease and that this disease is passed on to coyotes and dog wolves and you know who knows who else. They probably would have contributed to the downfall of some small prey species populations as well because you know we suspect that dogs were kind of left to their own devices around villages so they probably would have been out kind of scavenging for themselves with small animals and small prey. So yeah, I mean, I think dogs and humans are an invasive species um, in the Americas, and they would have arrived and kind of done some real disruption to the local ecosystem who had never seen a dog or a human before. It's really interesting because there are similarities across all of the world. Like I remember like with the Polynesians, for instance, when they reach some of these isolated Pacific islands, one of the main animals they bring with them is the dog and the rat. Um, And it really (laughs) alters the ecosystems of of those islands. Just before we completely wrap up, something you mentioned there about like disease. So when you look at like the remains of these very early dogs, are you able to kind of get a sense of an average life expectancy or were there any diseases that seem to be quite common with these early dogs? So we have quite a bit of evidence of, of distemper, which we still vaccinate our dogs against now, right? Distemper across dogs. And you can see distemper in the teeth. It leaves a little pitting in the teeth. So we have quite a bit of evidence of distemper across early dogs. It must have been quite common. We also do have evidence of lots of injuries to dogs, probably related to things like hunting or sledding, where dogs have like broken bones or a prey species has, you know, kicked a dog and the bone has re- has healed again, which, you know, must have been with the assistance of a human kind of helping it out and making sure that it can continue to walk. And we, we have lots of evidence that dogs... Seemingly, some dogs live to a pretty old age of what we would think of as an ancient hunter-gatherer dog living till, you know, 10 years old. is pretty old for any dog and much less a dog who's, you know, really living a, a tough life as a hunter-gatherer dog. So we have some evidence of dogs that seemingly have injuries that older dogs with a severe injury that has healed that gives you the impression that, you know, this dog is probably not incredibly useful as a hunting dog but someone must have loved it and taken care of it and you know put it in this burial and it has an injury that has clearly healed and that someone's fed it and loved it and you know cared for it so isn't that thing like that kind of altruistic nature something that is so relatable to us today with dogs because you've mentioned like you know being used for hunting and so on but the care that these people took in the burials of their dogs and also examples as you say of the dog's having their wounds healed, is this just brilliant evidence to show how far back this idea of the dog as your loving companion stretches in the story of humans down back into prehistory? Yeah, I think that if you talk to any people, including, you know, modern groups who rely on their dogs, who really depend on their dogs to do something, a working dog to do something for you, that the concept of what a dog means is very different from what we think of as a dog, you know, who lays on our couch and we pick up its poo and we feed it. Relying on your dog as a member of the pack, as someone who does something for you, kind of elevates them in some way as, you know, you see them as almost human-like and you 
treat them in the way that you would treat your humans when you die. We do this even when our dogs don't do anything for us, right? We bury our dogs and have elaborate ceremonies and dress them up and do all sorts of things with our dogs. Somehow dogs have like wiggled their way like into our our domestic space in a way that no other animal has. And they kind of, I'm not sure what it is. It must just be that this relationship between humans and dogs is so ancient that we just have some innate capacity to just care for a dog and include a dog in our lives. And I know all the cat lovers out there are just thinking, my cat does that too, but a cat does not love you the way your dog loves you, right? Um, And so there's just something between um, humans and dogs that feels like a kind of ancient connection between us. So we've gotten to the point where they don't even have to do anything for us to um, kind of receive this kind of revered quality, right? Absolutely. Angela, this has been absolutely brilliant. It sounds like, as you say, this is always a sexy hot topic and that when more information comes to light, more scientific developments, I mean, there is still so much to learn, still so much to be discovered about some of these earliest dogs and the story of dog domestication. Yes. I mean, it's ongoing forever. I mean, like I said, every time we think we have something solved, we come up with 10 new questions which are all exciting. Lucky for us that we're in a field that is not so easy to solve and that everyone's interested in and that, you know, everywhere I go, I get amazing dog stories from people and people tell me what their dog does and their dog's personalities and what breed their dog is and, you know, that they've done genetic testing on their dog and all this kind of exciting stuff. And so it's never ending. So we have a job for life. (laughs) From Siberia to Kazakhstan to the United States to Sunderland. Angela, it just goes for me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Angela Perry talking all things early dogs and why they were so important to these bands of humans crossing the Eurasian continent and even into the Americas too. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Last thing from me, wherever you're listening to The Ancients, whether it be on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or elsewhere, make sure that you are following the podcast so that you are notified when you release new episodes twice every week. We've got a lot of great stuff coming your way very soon. But that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.